clubhouse. If someone comes from my family, I promise that whatever you've seen or heard about me would pale in comparison to what I'm actually capable of. But this was an accident. If you and Adam had come to me with honesty and contrition, how could I have responded with violence? He was just a boy. Adam ran because he was afraid. His fear was entirely forgivable. It was your fear that got him killed. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight, we're discussing part 13 of Your Honor. Tonight's episode was written by Onika Barrett and was directed by Darren Grant. This is Onika's first time writing an episode of Your Honor and actually only one of their first writing credits at all. Um, They also wrote previously for Power. This is Darren's first time directing Your Honor, but Darren will be back to direct next week's episode, part 14, as well. So if you liked how this episode was directed, you'll like how next one's is directed also. (laughs) Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all the other fans. There's so much activity there. People have lots to say. And I think we've done a great job of like adding our little posts so that people can put their comments under those episodes. If all the conversation is in one thread, you just have to read through that one thread, in which they can get long and there's lots of tangents in there. But for me, that's better than nine different comment posts that you then have to follow the discussion going on in all of them. Yeah, which is great. I love that. That's how we run all of our Facebook groups. So. <laughs> Just a reminder that we assume you have watched this episode. We're not going to be going through it step by step. If you haven't watched it and you don't want to be spoiled, pause this now. Go watch the episode. Come back because we're going to spoil the episode. We're going to talk about the things that happen, but we usually do it more in a character by character or a situation or theme kind of way, not a step by step kind of way. Mike, this was a big Olivia episode. I felt like we actually got a little bit of backstory on her and a little bit of understanding of like what might be her motivation, which I feel like from the audience point of view, we're like, what are you doing, Olivia? What is it you're after? We're on episode three and we still don't know your goal. Come on, tell us a little bit more. Were you happy to get a little bit more on Olivia? Yeah, this episode, there were three really main encounters, two with Michael and then one with Nancy, which peeled back, I think, a lot of layers on Olivia, or maybe not a lot, but the most layers we've gotten, or the most, uh, the deepest look we've gotten inside of her, tying into what I thought was the episode theme of motivations. This episode was heavy on everyone's motivations. What is motivating everyone to be doing what they're doing? No more so, I think, than we got a look at Olivia. And related to that, Olivia's frustrations with Michael and with Nancy about why am I having to work so hard to convince you guys to do what I want 
want you to do that. She, she keeps saying these same things of, don't you want to get the bad guys also? Like, I think we're on the same side. She's used that with Michael a couple of times. She uses it with Nancy. Let's jump into Olivia. We could start right there because uh, her interactions with Michael in this episode were interesting and they were concise. And it's a great way to kind of jump into the episode as a whole. So uh, let's start with uh, their first interaction. I don't understand what you want from me. You don't have to understand. I can't be a spy for you. I didn't get you out of prison for your espionage skills. I don't need you to fake anything, okay? I just need you to be you. Why? Because you have relationships that no one else has. No, no. Everyone who gets close to me ends up hurt. I'm not going to let that happen. Listen to me. I know you, okay? I know what you're capable of. I know what you're incapable of. So what's his name? You already know his name. Inch by inch, I will get you to where I need you to go. Are you really going to bite me what every exactly step of the way? Of me? At this moment, Michael, all I want you to do is love that baby. So some, <laughs> inter- some interesting things there. One, I, you know, we definitely called it last week, and this confirms it. And when she picks up the when he picks up the phone, and her words are "Hi, Grandpa," uh, yeah. she she knew about the baby, right? We we guessed last yes. week she had to have known about it. She didn't know about it. Well, and I love that actually in our conversation, we actually reasoned it out because we were like, she doesn't like our gut instinct was that she didn't know about the baby. But then as we talked about it more, we were like, it just doesn't make sense that she wouldn't. So we did throw all in with that she did know about the baby, but it took us a little time to get there. On top of knowing about the baby, even more so than knowing about the baby let me say it that way she knows that fia tried to tell michael as she says that girl tried to tell you multiple times and you didn't want to listen my guess is maybe that's what was in those letters that fia was writing that michael wasn't reading but maybe olivia was reading or at least was having her people read that mail as it was coming into prison a hundred percent right all prison mails read right it's all gone through so right. surely yes yes but being flagged be and, and fed to mm-hmm. her it's not just a guard reading the mail like you would read anyone's inmates mail like the, this mail in particular was being flagged for for information absolutely again reiterating i don't need you to do anything i don't need you to be a spy i'm I'm not looking for a james bond she keeps saying to him and this is not this is the third time maybe she's said to him just be you the the attraction of michael to her seems to be just him himself his natural michaelness is all she seems to be looking for. Because I, I think the point of that is, and this is conjecture, we haven't proved this out, but Michael just being Michael gets him in the face of Carla where he has a spine. It gets him talking to Jimmy in this episode. He's sitting at the bar of the Baxter house drinking. He's having multiple conversations with Fia. He's holding the baby's uh, hand. The baby's holding his finger. Michael just being Michael is naturally going to get him back into this world because it's who he is. That You can't fight who you are at your base level. You can try. You can deny who you are. You can try and suppress parts of who you are. You could try just be the meat cutting guy at at the store but michael is michael and i think that's exactly when she says you just need to be you i think that's exactly what she means are you a why person are you somebody who needs to know the why or do you just need to know the how i need to know the why 
I need to know the why as well. And I don't know that everybody's like this because sometimes I have people say back to me, like, why do you have to know why? Like, why do you ask so many questions about it? But it's funny to me because whenever I see things like, you know, how to do something for dummies, you know, that kind of business or like, you know, like those how to Wikipedia pages. It's funny because they tell you the steps. But when you're teaching something to someone, if you actually want them to get it, you can't just teach them the steps. You have to teach them why you do the steps that way and why we're even doing this project. And I feel like Olivia is really Oh, she's just really rubbing against the grain when she's trying to just say, like, just do it without knowing the why. She's like beating against like everything that is like human intuition for me. Like, I feel like I I have to know why or I can't do it. Sometimes I don't even need to know the how if you tell me the why. I'm willing to figure out the how on my own if you just tell me why we're trying to do whatever it is we're trying to do. It's interesting that she's taking this tact. Here's the devil's advocate, because I, I agree with you and I'm the same way. It's the when we interview people and we interviewed act, actors in particular, one of the first questions I always ask them is how much of the backstory of this character did you know? How important is that to how you play the character? Do you just read the words on the page and you go from there? Or do you need to delve into it and have really understand who this character is? Do you need to know all their facts and figures, even if it's not coming up in the script? Because that's how I would be. I need to know my backstory. I need to know the motivations for why I'm having to do something. I'm a curious cat that way. I'm, you know, in the old CC club. I think you're the same way. And I think Michael is feeling the same way. I think Michael is definitely a why person. But here's the thing, and here's the devil's advocate I'm going to say. Knowing the why in this situation from Olivia's point of view, from what she has revealed so far, feels a little bit like Schrodinger's cat. Right. Right now, she needs Michael just to be Michael so that he can do what she needs him to do. If he was to know the why she wants him to just be him, that may affect how he acts, which would then make it less effective for him to do what she needs him to do. That makes sense. You know, especially when it comes to something like a police investigation, you know, there's so many things that have to be kept close to the vest or else people aren't going to act normally. Right. Well, like a, if they know thing, information, right. right they're going to, but they're going to act weird. Right. One, if they, right. if they know like it's a setup or whatever, you know, so you kind of have to keep that information from them. It feels like such a, a not effective tact to take with people for her to continuously, no matter who it is, it's been Nancy it's been Michael. All these people are looking at her like, you're a dick for not telling me why, you know? And it's like, it's like she's making like more enemy out of them than, than need be, you know, if she could give them something. If you do something unconsciously, like let's say you play with your hair or mm -hmm. you touch your nose or you have a vocal tick that you're not even aware of. The second someone says it to you you become hyper aware of it and it affects how you act and how you behave because you become fixated on it, which I think from Olivia's plan is the worst thing she can have. She doesn't want Michael to be hyper aware of him doing what he does as to get near the Baxters or Jimmy or in back into the family, right? If he becomes aware of the why, it's going to make him too focused on it for good or for bad, either trying to do it so he can fulfill his end of the bargain to keep himself out of jail and Charlie safe, or it's going to make him rebel against it. He's going to act differently. So by not knowing the why, he can't 
be hyper-focused on what he's doing. Let's jump ahead here. She says, all I need you to do right now, Michael, is is love the baby. The end of the episode, he's loving on that baby, right? Fia goes to pee. He goes because the baby cries. He's drawn to it. (laughs) Goes to pee. Well, that's what she said. She's like, I had to go pee. Um, So he goes, the baby, he goes to the baby when the baby cries. He's there. He's cooing at it. He puts his hand down. The baby grabs his finger. The baby's doing all the baby shit that babies do, right? Very cute. baby is selling it so he's loving the baby and what happens the apparition of jimmy appears next to him so all he had to do was love the baby and boom it's like a magnet but jimmy baxter's there next to him in a non-confrontational way they're just two doofy grandpas smiling over a baby so olivia's right all you have to do right now is love the baby boom end of the episode loving the baby gets him right next to jimmy now we don't know what that conversation is going to be we don't know what's going to happen when fia comes out of the bathroom and sees the two of them standing next to each other or however but for right now they're peacefully standing next to each other watching a baby just like two grandpas it's a very interesting transformation to see these two men go from the men we've known since season one to transform into two grandpas in front of your eyes because it's very subtle and it's very just like, OK, you know, now that now this is who they are. How does this work? You know, what is, what does this look like for these two men? Very different. Let's stay with Olivia, though, because she's still beating her head against the wheel because she's just having trouble understanding why she says it here. Right. Are you going to I'm going to get you where I need you to go are you really going to fight me every step of the way but then it it escalates and they have another conversation when he gets into the car with her and the overpass and great acting on cranston's part here when she pulls up and the window comes down and he's sitting next to that guy in the park bench on the bus bench he like shakes his head and then like he tries to like pretend like he can't see her right he puts (laughs) his head down really good subtle acting there but let's jump into the car with them and uh, listen to this interaction and what did you and carlo talk about so you're just watching me. What did you and Carlo talk about? Have I given you the impression that any of this is optional? I don't know why you're trying to push me. Seriously? Everything you know about the Baxters, everything you've seen them do, it... Honestly, it's just driving me a little batshit crazy that I have to persuade you to take them down. Well, that's because you still think that justice is something you can achieve. Yes, I do. But all I'm worried about right now is what those people still plan to do and all the evil that is planning to come. Why do you care so much? Why don't you care at all? Uh, right there. Uh, that's her frustration. We've heard her say, don't you want to help me get the bad guys? It's one of the first things she says to him in the jail cell is, or maybe you could be motivated just be- by what motivates me, chasing the bad guys. She's confused. She's, I think she's genuinely confused why this judge, who was an honorable judge for so long, is being so hard to persuade to play ball beyond the Charlie motivation, beyond his freedom motivation. Why isn't chasing bad guys and taking down this horrible crime boss and every tentacle connected to him? Why isn't that enough? For me, again, it's it's not that. It's her tact. I understand she has to keep things from him, but you have to give something a little bit for someone to want to cooperate with you. You know, and I understand she's just pulling this like, I have control over you, so you have to do everything I say. 
I get it. And yes, legally, that's true. But from like human to human, like the interpersonal skills are just not there. Like she's not persuading him. She's trying to control him, but she's not persuading anyone. And to me, this is like one of those like you get more flies with honey. Like she should have a little bit of other game here besides just the you'll do what I say because I say it. I, I feel like that works with very few people. I mean, you're a lawyer. Do you find that that most people dig their heels in when you start trying to yank their chain? Or is it more like if you could be a little bit cool and explain a little bit, most times people will get on board. It's really hard when you leave them in the dark. I mean, people are scared. It's a survival instinct thing, right? Like, I don't want to just go blindly into this situation without knowing what you're getting me into. You have to have the carrot. You can't be hit with the stick all the time. And she never gives the carrot, man. Never gives the, the carrot. The only carrot so far has been Charlie. Keep Charlie out. Of, you're keeping Charlie out of jail. She's not one playing that card nearly enough. And two, that's only going to go so far with Michael, right? The stick whacking is far more than the attractiveness of the carrot. That's not even a candy carrot, right? That's not even carrot in like some brown sugar. That's just right. that's just a right out of the ground still has dirt on a carrot that she's hanging <laughs> for him. She's making him have to do the work, which is difficult because of the state he's in still, which I I think is still a ton of shock. I understand that they touched on that and the idea that the confession was coming during a time during shock. But I think he's he's fully in shock now, even, you know, the shock of getting out of prison and just being like, what am I doing here now? You know, like, what is this now? I'm back in the Baxter Hotel. Like, it would be such like a mind blowing experience, you know, to be one day in a prison cell next day, right standing next to jimmy baxter looking at a baby like i don't even know how fast your mind could really process that and be okay with it given all of the the tragedy that he's gone through in the last year this is something that olivia has got to use a little bit more finesse on these people because i think you know maybe this is her big flaw and maybe this is why she lost the case in new york and ends up in in louisiana maybe her flaw is her lack of finesse and that's what they're trying to expose to us here man do i want her to to work a different angle with some of these people and try to get them more on board willingly rather than just strong arming them. A wonderful segue to the last Olivia segment, which is where she, instead of continuing to go at Michael, she switches gears and we see her. She goes now towards Nancy with some undefined plan for the two of them to work together. Essentially, she's looking to get Nancy on board to help her help persuade Michael to play ball in a more willing way than he has shown so far. Let's listen to this clip because this is interesting, not only for motivation, not only to hear kind of Nancy get to vent a little bit more. But just the kind of back and forth and the idea that Nancy has been looking a little bit into Olivia and Olivia's career and peeling back those layers on Olivia. You're not looking at the big picture. Right. The release one criminal to catch another. No. To catch a dozen more. A hundred more. Let me explain this to you. The Baxters are New Orleans, but they connect to crime families all up and down the East Coast. Right. And you're from the Southern District of New York. Right, so I, I'm guessing that this transfer was a demotion. I get it. You know, you're coming off of a loss and New Orleans feels small to you. Well, it's true, right? There are a lot of things that are true. It's also true that you are not really known for your ability to close cases, but I don't have the time or the patience to go there. Okay, I had Michael Desiato's conviction in hand until you stepped in. You got a confession from a man who was in shock and just lost everything. Okay, this is an interesting tactic considering I know you want something from me. 
I do. I need help with Michael. <laughs> no, sorry. He's yours. You can deal with him now. So the issue is I am having difficulty motivating him. Well, of course you are. He's selfish. He doesn't care. You can't motivate him. So what are you saying? I have to motivate you to help me try? We both want the same things, right? I don't have any clue what you want. Again, she's just using the tactic of, we all want the same thing. We want to get the bad guys. We want to take down the bad guys. But Nancy's saying kind of the same thing Michael's saying. I have no idea what you want. I don't know what you actually want from me. I don't know what you want me to do. It's A, take down the bad guys. B, question mark. C, profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the, the how to be a millionaire. Number one, get a million dollars. And you're like, Olivia, but what's the freaking in between? <laughs> like, you're not helping us here. I am happy for this conversation because I feel like Nancy did a good job of expressing what the audience members are saying, which is like, what is this woman doing? And like, this is a crazy way to try to coerce me to do something. You're right. They can be feel like a piece me. of shit. Right, right, yeah, right, right. Like, what are you doing? And this isn't the way this isn't the way that we should be working together. And typically it's not the way that two women work together. It's it's really a shit idea to come at each other, you know, with like, yeah, you're a bitch, you're a bitch kind of like feel to each other. You're not going to get anywhere with that business. So I hope that this conversation shakes Olivia up a little bit and makes her think like, I got to I got to come at these people in a little bit different way. The backstory reveal of Olivia is not from the Eastern District of Louisiana. Nor naturally, she's a recent transfer here coming out of the Southern District of New York. And for those that aren't aware, the Southern District of New York is one of the largest, busiest federal courts in the country. It handles a tremendous amount of high profile federal crime. In particular, for this storyline, it is a popular place for mafia families and mafia trials to take place in the Southern District. It's a big place where uh, high profile, high profile white collar fraud crimes and securities law crimes. A lot of stuff happens in the Southern District of New York, old full 40 fully square down in uh, lower Manhattan. Very, very big, important court to, to be a uh, prosecutor and assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District is a big stepping stone. That, that's someone who's going to go on to big, important things in the government. And so whatever trial she lost, which got, which got her bounced out of the Southern District, and moved to Louisiana had to be a pretty significant black eye for the office in order for that to happen. I think with that, you see where her zealousness in wanting to take down the Baxters as a way of taking down, what did she say, the entire eastern seaboard of crime families? Yes. That's ambitious to be doing <laughs> out of the eastern district of Louisiana. Also, if you're framing it with she's trying to make up for some kind of embarrassing loss in her record, well, then it makes more sense why she would be trying to hit a home run with this case and doing whatever she has to to get the Baxters down. And why she could be coming at this with a chip on her shoulder. She's way too good for this. She doesn't want to be dealing with this. She doesn't feel like she owes anyone 
any answers whatsoever. And that makes sense if you feel like you've been knocked down a peg. You know, you're frustrated already. I'm sure she's pissed about whatever and frustrated about whatever went wrong with that case. So you're bringing all that energy, right, with you down to this case because this is a prove yourself case now. This is a like, do you do you deserve to be part of all this? And so now she has to do that. And every time someone questions her, it's like so she feels like they're so below her pay grade that it's like, bah, it's you know, offensive a, to her. Another that they would be question. Questioning her, right? Yeah. Another question. You know, it's, it's like when you have little kids and you say, like, asked and answered. That's enough. Quit asking me the same thing. Which begs the question, is there a possibility of these two actually being able to work together, be able to be in cahoots together? Because Nancy has her own agenda. Nancy's agenda is Michael is a piece of shit. He's a lying, selfish person. She said it. She even took time in this clip to say it. You know, of course he can't motivate him. He's selfish. He only does what he wants to do for his own his own gain. Nancy wants to see Michael back in prison while yes, she's a dogged cop and she is committed to the idea of justice, right? Michael says to Olivia, you're, you're mistaken that justice can still be achieved here. And she's like, yes, it can. Nancy also believes in justice, but they're seeking justice, two different kinds of justice, right? Nancy wants justice for her is Michael back in prison for what he did, disgracing the judgeship offending her sense of what law enforcement and honor and justice should be. Olivia is using Michael in order to take down the Baxter's justice for her. Is there a middle ground there where they actually can possibly work together? That's the big question, I think, going forward. I have a hard time seeing these women working together because I feel like they are very stubborn, very headstrong. If they do, it will be at like arm's length. I really don't see, you know, them with like their arm around each other at the end of this, like a buddy, you know, cop comedy, like we did it, you know, like I don't see that happening. If they help each other out, it'll be like periphery, like Nancy will be over there and she will either like turn a blind eye to something or like let someone in or something like that in a way that's like she can help and advance things or at least not stand in the way and not become an obstacle for other things. If they do end up arm in arm smiling at the end of this case, I will be very surprised. I mean, even just listening to you say that, I can't see her not standing in the way, not being an obstacle. <laughs> not unless, not unless she's given a direct order by some superior, superior in the New Orleans police department. I can't see her willingly not being an obstacle and standing in the way. Because I think to do what Olivia is asking her to do here, and again, she doesn't really specify what she wants her to do here. If it involves anything along the lines of what I think it is, it's going to require Nancy to slide up to Michael and be, conciliatory to him to be a quote-unquote friend to him to give him some get him to open up right to all the things that nancy doesn't want to fucking do when your guardian angel vanishes i'll be there that's nancy right now that's where nancy's at right now she's just she's just she is a vulture sitting on the power line waiting for the waiting for the corpse to drop and so she can sweep in there swoop in there i don't think we're done with these two having interaction together but it'll be interesting to see how they play the michael ping pong uh between them well, in setting this up that Nancy has this move of going behind Olivia's back and getting information, now that they've set up that as like a dynamic between the two of them, I can see that happening in a pattern repeating. Like where we have Olivia, she doesn't realize Nancy went behind and found out something about her, found out something about what she's doing or whatever, and will use that as leverage. I think we're going to see that happen again and again. 
Let's get to Michael and Fia and Michael and the Baxters as a whole in this episode, because actually this ended up, I think, as far as storyline was a big progression this week uh, as Michael grows more, I don't want to say relaxed, but seems more were less wary about being out of prison and adjusting to his new life on the outside. He continues to be very talkative to Fia and less running away from her, much more willing to engage with her. And to Fia's credit, I don't know if you see this, I think she's being super understanding. I think she is being very smart with how she's dealing with Michael. I feel like there's something about being like having a teen pregnancy and being a teen mom like she is you are ready to give an excuse to the other person for them to not accept your baby and your pregnancy and everything that happened like there's some amount of it you have to say it's okay if you're uncomfortable because i know this isn't like an ideal situation you're giving them an out basically yeah like i feel like that happens a lot and again like i've you know you and i've seen this on plenty of other shows where there's sort of like this like you know i've got it you don't have to i'm not asking for your help i'm not asking for it like there has to be all this all these disclaimers between people and for them and instead of just being like you should love the baby because you should love the baby because you're the grandpa grandfather it it tends to be like a if you're not comfortable with this if if you don't want to do it you don't have to do it like there's all these quick uh like don't don't worry about it it's okay kind of moments that preemptive happen. excuses right yeah and i don't know if that's just coming from a place of like teen pregnancy kind of thing or what but do you get what i'm saying like where there's that strange like like imbalance yeah no I, you're right and we see that in this episode she says i mean she says to him i just wanted you to know that the baby existed if you say, if you don't want to be involved that's cool i won't keep coming back here mm-hmm. and he says you know it's a lot and she's like i totally understand that she's she's full of empathy and understanding with him part of that i think part of that is what you're saying the she feels like she needs to give him an out without judgment but i think part of it is i think she really sees michael as the last connection to adam and by extension given what we know of her current family life with the baxters we haven't seen her with any other friends i mean how many people do we know that have babies you always have some friend that's around that's that's Google guying over the baby or whatever. She says in last week's episode, remember, she says to him about moving into the hotel, like none of my friends understand it. They think it's weird that I moved into my parents' hotel. I, Fia and the baby yes. are very much on an island alone. Michael is very much the only person she maybe have in her life. I feel like her it, a person in her position, it's like a very humbling position to be in because you, you're coming from that place of like that immortality of a teenager into this like completely being thrust into being a parent, being an adult, you know, having this responsibility that's like so much bigger than you can ever even really wrap your brain around. It's very humbling. Like, oh, my God, now. And I think that that process creates a lot of empathy for other people suddenly you're very compassionate whereas a lot of teenagers compassionate is not a word we use for most teenagers right they're not known for their compassion for others but once that they've been through something like that where they're like feeling like okay the world is a big place and can really like crush me they tend to kind of start seeing other people and being more sensitive to other people's situations so i see that with her i see she grew up like tenfold you know in the last year having this baby 
baby and obviously running her own show. I mean, she's she's not leaning on her parents for childcare. Obviously, she's not leaning on them for for money besides obviously a place to live. Obviously, and I'm sure she's eating there and everything else too. So yes, she's being supported by right, them. She doesn't have a job, right? She's not. Right, she doesn't but- seem to, right? But she, but also they're not they're not like hands on like you know taking care of a baby that little is a 24 hour a day job that would be difficult by yourself and this goes back to even season one i think they've always drawn fia as a very old soul kind of teenager Mm. right she she wasn't she was never neither was adam really he was a little more emo more more typical teenager emo but fia was always more old soul but i think about her remember when they went to the amusement park and she was like let's go and she was just like she just had like no cares and stuff like that and and that's beautiful and an awesome part of being like a young you know, person and a teenager that you can be so relaxed and carefree. That's long gone. You know, now she's got nothing but cares, right? And she has to worry about so many things that it really like tamped down that sort of side of her of being like, let's get in the Volkswagen and just drive wherever we go. Like, I'm sure that's not the way she feels now. Let's get back to Michael and Fia, because their two meaningful conversations in this episode actually go back to this idea of religion, which, for whatever reason, seems to be a predominant topic when these two are talking so far this season. The Religion was a big part of we talked about this last week. I know religion was a big part of Fia's storyline in season one because of her feelings about God or whether or not there even is a God. And maybe if there is a God, she's really angry at him, but maybe God is dead kind of thing. And running that in contrary to Gina in particular, I remember they bring in the priest with when she they learn she's got a boyfriend and, and, and all of those conflicting feelings. So far, the majority of her conversations with Michael have dealt with heaven and hell and, and this idea of religion. And it continues this week on this question of baptism. Right. Because Gina is pushing for the baby to be baptized, even though Fia now has a a firm stance of being an atheist. She is she is firmly, firmly referring to herself as an atheist. She says it's a weird thing to ask an atheist to do to have your baby baptized. But Gina is making the point and we'll get into this later when we get into the Baxter family specifically that doesn't deal with Michael. She gets it to this point of you're doing it for me. I'm asking you for me, for my sake. I want to know that the Rockos will be united in the hereafter. But let's get to the conversation with Fia and Michael, because I think Michael, again, is this beacon in the darkness for her. He's, again, on this topic in particular, someone that she can find identification with that she can't get necessarily from anyone in her family. So let's listen to the first of these two conversations. My mom wants Rocco to be baptized. What do you want? Thank you for asking. You're the first person who has. Uh, heaven, the afterlife, I, I... I never believed in that stuff. But after losing my brother... and then Adam... You want heaven to exist. 
Isn't that a rub that we all have? I think a lot of people aren't maybe so sure about God or if there is an almighty power or this idea of heaven and hell. There's something very comforting about the idea, this idea of wanting heaven to exist. Even if you don't believe in God, you still maybe want to believe in heaven. I think you want to at least believe in some sort of like reuniting with people who have passed. I can remember uh, being young and having a dog pass away and I was old enough to be driving and I was driving somewhere after that. And I had this thought in my head of like, boy, heaven sure getting like full up with like people and animals that I know. And there was something that was like both like sad, but also comforting about that. Like, boy, there's a lot of people who'd be waiting for me. And there was something that was like good about that, but, you know, scary and sad all at the same time. You know, what I took away from that clip, and I don't know if they did this on purpose, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, but there's an interview with Meghan Markle that really like set off a lot of things going on with that family where the reporter asks her how she's doing. And she says it almost verbatim the way that Fia says it, where she says, thank you for asking. You're the first one to she says it she says it almost exactly the same way and so it was really it really brought up that thought for me of like kind of being feeling like you're in this grind where like you're a part of this larger organization or whatever and nobody ever asks you what you think or how you feel about anything you're just you have to you know, go along with what everyone is telling you to do all the time while the Baxter family is not being presented to us as this large organization like tangibly for us, like they're telling us they're a large organization. They're telling us that they have all these connections. We haven't actually seen this in action. So I kind of need the show to show us Jimmy Baxter doing some much bigger things than just, you know, um, you know, having the the uh, beatdowns with like Michael or Trevor from like, you know, season one. Like I need I need to see him doing some organized crime. To me, she's a young mom who needs to be seen. And Michael is so good at that. He's so good at seeing people. Right. He's had you, you made know, a great point about this last week, right? Uh, this I, this is the judge in him, right? Yeah, this, this, this is the decades from the bench, right? Of him seeing someone come in who is struggling and him actually asking some questions. And that was what he did with all those defendants. If you remember, the first thing he would do was ask them a bunch of questions. And they were meant to understand where these people were coming from and what was actually going on. And I think that that just hit Fia in the exact spot she needed. You know, she needed someone to see her. But really, truly, all young parents feel that way. I I think that anyone who is like, oh, my God, you actually saw me. You actually, like, got me a cup of coffee. You didn't bring a present for the baby, but you brought something for me, mom. Like, that's a really overlooked situation that I'm glad that they hit upon here. I think it's the second time, actually, in this season where he's asked her, well, what do you want to do? And she's had that same reaction. I think this is the second time that she's had the reaction of, you're the first one to ask me that. I feel like, was it when they were in, when he, when she visited him in prison or in the conversation last week in the restaurant, he says something, she says something to him. His, at the restaurant, his response say. was, well, what do you want to do? And she's taken aback because I think when you are Jimmy and Gina Baxter's kid, you don't get asked your opinion or your wants or feelings very often. I think it's very much do as, you, as you're told and don't ask questions. So from that point of view, Michael is a, is a breath of fresh air for her. Someone who 
I'm trying hard not to pose this in a romantic way. There is a romantic aspect to their interactions, and I know that's not what they're going for. But the idea of someone paying attention to Fia that's not her family, I I think just has has a a romantic aspect to it that maybe is the role Adam would be playing if he was still alive that wasn't her family of at. I just say Adam would say, well, what do you want to do? Do you want the baby to be baptized? You know? Right. So how about instead of thinking romantic, how about just thinking like caring, like Mm. actually caring about her? That absolutely is true. Right. There's an intimacy there. There, there is a, yeah, caring is There's a great some word. vulnerability there between the two of them. And, and he is being vulnerable too, because, you know, in saying, well, what is it you want? I mean, he's opening the door to a thousand comments she could make, you know, including hurtful ones. So he's, he's always opening the door to her being able to express whatever it is she wants to say, which helps their relationship kind of like find some trust and some like loyalty with each other, which is wonderful to see. I, it's exactly, I'm sure, what Olivia wants. Let's fast forward. Michael comes to her suite to see the baby. Um, they sit down on the couch. They, that apartment is just so dead on for what a young parent's apartment looks like with a little baby. It feels very, very familiar to me. Just clothes just everywhere. All the junk, yeah. Just, baby gear just baby gear everywhere but when they sit down the little baptism suit is sitting between them on the back of the couch and i noticed it right away it looks almost it looked so much like what tom's little baptism suit was yeah Uh, like i i went oh like i like i like before i was like aware of it like i let out a little bit of like and i'm not super religious let's be let's be clear i am not very religious at all i i think i'm very much like fia insofar as I want heaven to exist because I like the idea and the comfort of it. As far as the rational part of my brain goes, I'm very unsure of what what is out there. But I like the idea of it, though. And to the extent that it helps, I mean, Tom was baptized and, you know, I'm technically Catholic and Tom is technically Catholic. And 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 so that little bit, but that little baptism, there's something about it, though, instinctively made me go, oh, because it just reminded <laughs> me of what he wore. Well, it's so tiny. And I think that, that it also... It's so shiny, uh, too. It's like, yeah, you just thought and it triggers it. this thing inside of you where you think, I don't know if superstitions are true. I don't know if getting baptized is essential to going to heaven generally. But as a parent, doesn't it feel like we do all these things just, just almost out case. of like the... Yeah, just in case this is the way you get there. And just in case this is the thing that's going to protect you, throwing salt over your shoulder, or carrying the rabbit's foot or whatever you know, like you just you want to think you did everything you could to keep your baby safe. And anytime you see baby clothes, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to awe every time. Like, oh, that's so adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's a little when he picks up the little booty and he kind of yes. like snickers to himself because he like waves it around. Because it's, so, it's tiny, so tiny. It's like, silly. like a little foot fits in there. <laughs> yes. Literally, that booty is like the size of my thumb. I was thinking about it. So cute. I want to get to their conversation, though. I didn't pull the audio. We're just going to talk about it. He opens up to her by admitting that Robin wanted to baptize Adam and that they fought about it. They just didn't disagree about it. He says they fought about it. And Robin said to him, why do you fight so hard when it doesn't mean anything to you? And I thought that was an interesting question, really, for all of us. His answer is because I thought I was right. And then she says, well, do you regret not fighting more? 
And he says, I regret not giving in more often. That whole conversation hit me really, hit me pretty hard because I found like it resonates. It resonates with me as I look back on my life, but I think maybe hopefully it resonates with a lot of people. I, I, we, we, sometimes we draw lines in the sand. And when you take a step back of why? What do you actually give a shit? Is it just because you're right? And is it worth it at the end of the day when your wife is dead or a parent is gone or a grandparent is gone and you can't or a friend, a best friend is gone and you can't take back all those moments that you fought over something that you fought about only because you wanted to be right? Is it worth it? Do you, do you regret that maybe you should have given in more often? I mean, for my own self, I really try to give in um, as often as I feel like I can. <laughs> it's a weird life, right? Because on one hand, you feel like you have to have some boundaries. You have to have some bar that you don't want your life to slip below or whatever. And at the and on the other side, you don't want to be fighting all the time. And, you know, if it is just something like it really doesn't matter if you do it this way or that way, or you take this route to the store or that route, or you park in this parking lot or whatever, you know, like those types of things. It's like, God, just let it go. I think that's definitely something with age that you start to realize, like, God, that was a really dumb thing to kind of like want to die on that hill, you know? Age, but more, I think, often and more unfortunately is when the person you would fight with is gone. Because then you look back and you start analyzing all those conversations. You're like, why? Why did I waste that time being antagonistic? It's truly time you can't get back. This is like the Jimmy conversation with Carlo last week. Time is fleeting. There's only so much time space and you can have as much space as you want in this world but time is fleeting and is forever shrinking think back on this conversation i hope it makes people at least stop and think about the conversations and the fights that we all choose to have in our lives and is it really worth having when the time is gone and that person is gone will you look back in that fight and be like that was a hill worth dying on i think this is an interesting conversation because it really applies to gina and Fia, without Michael really maybe intentionally doing so, or maybe intentionally doing so, I think he's influencing Fia here on the baptism. Because Gina essentially says this, or says a version of this, you're an atheist, what do you give a shit about the baptism? Do it for me, it's important to me. It's really the same conversation. Gina is Michael, and Robin is Gina in this situation. It's different when your mom says it, I swear, though. <laughs> uh, of course it is. Of course you feel it like, is. But... Mom, especially she's still a teenager. So all this stuff has happened to her. But, you know, she's still a teenager. When she hears her mom saying stuff like that, it's like, Mom, you don't understand. You know, all that kind of stuff. Hey, you know, David Crosby passed this past week. And um, he has a great quote about time. Um, it's don't waste the time. Time is the final currency. Not money, not power. It's time. And I was like, oh, man, that was a good one. Because that's how true. it feels. Yeah. Like, and to your point about the like, what's it to you to just let it let let someone in? So my family background is being Lithuanian. I'm 100 percent Lithuanian. And one of our huge traits is being very hospitable. Part of that is you just you invite everyone more the merrier. Like, why not? You know, why not invite someone? Why not have them come along? Don't don't exclude people. And the same thing, like, don't don't go out of your way to be like a problem like that. Like just, if it doesn't bother you really, you just freaking do it. Like do it because it makes someone else happy. That's good enough reason to do it. I 
100% agree. You know, with Tom turning, he's about to turn 15 in a few months. I'm about to turn 45 in just two weeks. I, I think about time all the time. I think about how quickly it's running through the sand, the, the sand is running through the hourglass all the time now. This conversation just hit me particularly hard. Not in like, a, I wasn't weepy about it, but it made me stop and think it's true. And I, I don't, I don't want to say I'm argumentative, but I, <laughs> I'm, I, I like being precise and uh-huh. I, I like being clear on things. And so, yeah, I, I definitely nitpick when I shouldn't. And I definitely, I definitely <laughs> carry on conversations when I should just let it go. And it's things like this that make me stop and be like, why, why did you waste that time? What did you get out of it? <laughs> Other than just being right, because I know I'm right. And so that's what, that's the, that's purely yeah. the motivation, but that's but purely see, the motivation. Though, get, but you that's, have to get to that next step where you say right isn't isn't what does it matter anything right yeah, what does it matter that's the yeah. point i'm trying to get to mm-hmm. is I, being right what is uh, I, you know i'm right so often during the day what i don't need to be right <laughs> i don't need everyone to know i'm right and coming back to the baptism concept i think it's one of those things like you put a bike helmet on your kid you put little knee pads on them like i look at baptism as just one more padding that you put on them and like if it's if it's good and it helps protect them somehow awesome and you know and for people who believe other parts to that that it means more than that that's great and just for clarification's sake i was being sarcastic when i said that i'm right all the time every day (laughs) uh i am wrong a tremendous amount of time i actually don't think i'm right all the time i think i'm wrong most of the time so (laughs) i don't think you think you're wrong most of the time over the course of the day i think i I throw out tons of shit that i sometimes i say stuff just because listen there are people who think they're right all the time and live in ignorance you my friend do your research and you are an educated person and so you're somebody who if you think you're right it's because you really did like read something about it or you went and looked it up and found more information so so you're not coming from a place of just like i'm right because i say i'm right which there's one of those people who are super obnoxious but you know you're coming out of a place that you really put your efforts into making sure you have the right information so i appreciate that and hey, nine times out of ten, I say to you, you know what? You probably looked this up. It's fine. It's cool. We can like have it. You can be right on this. Like it doesn't matter to me. That's a funny thing. I don't know why it doesn't matter to me to be right. Like I'm so calm inside my own heart about like, I don't care if you think if I'm right or if anyone thinks that I'm right because like I know what I know and I'm good with it. I don't know if that's a whole different place. Because <laughs> you were loved more as a child, I think. <laughs> That's it. But you, you think so? I you think, think so. it has to do with the quietness inside somebody? I do think has to do with if you feel like you were listened to at some point, right? You could be more quiet. I definitely grew up feeling like I was in a pressure cooker where being right was very important in many aspects of my life. Like it was, okay. it was definitely it was a it was a, it was a currency to be dealt in being ah. correct. Okay, facts and figures were important. But and and like because because your folks also had jobs that like like your mom's like was like with like numbers where like facts and figures are important, right? Yes. So so there would be like a value placed on being correct, like having the exact right number, being precise about things. Well, and my father, my father always insisted he was right. My father was very his way or the highway and always thought he was right, but didn't necessarily have done the research. He mm. just he just thought things and thought they were right. 
<laughs> and I think that, that that's for sure a big big one of my motivations. There's a lot of us is... though that think our dads are like that. No, I bet our kids think. Oh we're no, like no. That. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm empirically saying, like, I I know for a fact <laughs> that he would just say things and be like, I know I'm right. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. That's Encyclo- Encyclopedia Britannica disagrees with you, but what are we going to do? Anyway, well, this, and you know, there's just personality. This was not meant to become too. my therapy session. No, it's okay. And, hey, that's okay. If you guys listen to any of our other things, most especially if you go listen to Kevin can fuck himself, you guys are going to hear like a massive amount of us healing through relationship trauma on that podcast. But I think it's really important. Why do we care about any of this stuff? Why do we care about things like how a character responds to something like a baptism? Why? Why are we delving into this? Why are we talking about the different levels of like? say maturity or where or personality types because we're seeing all these on the screen and we're trying to grapple with why are they writing michael to be this compassionate person in this particular scene and so then we can back it up and say okay his time on the bench he would have you know seen all these people like this who needed an extra ear someone listening to them i think it helps us predict basically what we think is going to happen in this story so i'm okay with us delving into why why we do the things we do because i think it's going to be reflected on the screen in some way i think one of the recurring features of michael since he's been out of prison is lack of standing up for himself i don't want to say weak but we haven't seen him be the michael desiato of season one the 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 straight spined you know of of steel ballsy kind of person that 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 aspect of him seemed to have died a little bit as adam died in his lap i think as he went through each stage of protecting adam he lost some of his mojo and like that kind of strutting that you can think of him at the beginning of the whole story where he could like strut through the courthouse you know and kind of feel like or he had righteousness on his side Mm -hmm. honor on his side right and as he kind of you know, chipped away at his own honor, then uh, we're now we're seeing this this more rolled up in a ball posture of a boiled shrimp of a guy. And why do I bring that up is because I think we finally got a glimpse of that man still exists inside him. I, I think let's go back to the park. Carlo comes over and ruins their perfectly nice conversation on their little picnic blankets after Michael walks off because he doesn't really want to have anything to do with a conversation with Carlo. Carlo chases him down. He tells me he's going to apologize, but really Carlo just wants a little pound of flesh out of earshot. Let's listen to their conversation because I, I like when this Michael shows up. Do you want to tell me what you're doing with my sister? She reached out to me. Yeah, she's in a tough spot right now. She needs family. Not some bum who just got out of prison. You don't see the irony of that statement. I was young. Plus, I served my full sentence. Not for killing Kobe Jones. That was self-defense, remember? He had it coming. You don't worry about karma. Hasn't caught up to me yet. His brother did try to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, but he missed. I'll see you around, Judge. Carlo. Ever heard of Harry the Hook? 
No. The guy out of Chicago. You remind me of him. There's some steel in this voice. You don't see the irony in that statement. You didn't face karma for killing Kofi Jones. There's some steel. You remind me of Harry the Hook. And we're going to get into Harry the Hook here in a second. There's some steel in Michael Desiato's voice in this conversation. It's the first time he's felt like he doesn't really fear the world is in this conversation. I kind of fucking liked it a lot. It was refreshing to see him have a backbone again. It was great to see his like lungs fill with oxygen and actually yeah, feel like he could puffed. say, yeah, what he wanted to say. And just remind Carlo, like, you know, keep you in your place too, buddy. Like, you're not like cock of the walk around here. Like, you have your own shit. You know, do not start throwing stones this way. You know, like, worry about your own karma. There's like a little TikTok video when this little baby's in the backseat and the dad keeps trying to help and the baby goes, worry about yourself. <laughs> Mind your own business. Worry about yourself. And it's like, that's all that, It's that's the message. It's like, Carla, why don't you go worry about how you're going to end up here and stop worrying about what who I'm talking to. You know I fist pump when he brought up karma. Don't you worry oh, yes. about karma? It was the first time I swear I've heard them say it. And we've been talking about it for all of season one. All of season one. This is the first acknowledge, which makes me feel like we were on the right track the entire time. Yeah. Right? It, we knew it would have been the subtext here. It was the first time that he said it out loud. And he's 100%. Don't you worry about karma. I love that. I love that tone he has. You know, don't you see the irony in that statement? <laughs> there, there's just a very Cranston-esque, like, like, like a spine. There's, there's some steel in that spine when he's saying those things. It's great. It, it's great because we haven't heard it now in, since, a in time. a long time, since, or before season one and, and probably well before the season finale of, of season one. I think maybe the last time he has that kind of steel in his voice is when he's in the garden outside the restaurants when, uh, Adam had gotten accepted to NYU and Jimmy shows oh, up and he yeah. says I make them respect me I'm their daddy they yeah. do what I want them that's the last time Michael had like some real cojones in his voice and it was it was refreshing to hear I was going to read you a very long paragraph about Harry the Hook but Carlo ends up doing the research for us I like that Michael got into his head I like that Carlo is sitting up at nights watching the security feeds I like that he's a little bit worried about what what michael has said to him and it's gotten in his head in a little bit of fear because listen carlo should be fearful carlo should fear karma i mean we talked about him being a little bit mellow but this episode showed he's still carlo no repentance for anything he did no thought of or accountability for his actions for what he's done this episode made that clear and he is one of those people who absolutely need consequences or they can never get back on the straight and narrow right. And so anytime when he gets away with something, it just emboldens him and makes him feel like he is just so untouchable. And it, it drives you crazy. You want to shake him. Let's listen to Harry the Hook because it's actually a really interesting story. So when we hear Carl's going to give us the basic story that I have some things that I think are interesting uh, to supplement with. You know who Harry the Hook is? Mm, not to my knowledge. He was a mobster in Chicago. Hmm? In the 70s, killed a Teamster official. They had a trial. He was found not guilty. 25 years later, he was retried and convicted. 
must have been a, a hung jury the first time. It wasn't. It was an acquittal. They said that double jeopardy didn't apply because there was no actual jeopardy in the first place. Because the judge had been gotten to. Huh. Who told you about this? And Carlo goes to pull up the security feed and show Michael is now drinking at the Baxter House bar. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Who told you about this? And it's all like, Ooh. it felt like a soap opera, like, doo, doo, doo. <laughs> so the mobster in uh, in question, his name was Harry Albin, born in 1939, died in 2010. He was a Chicago mobster. He got the name Hook because of his boxing career in high school. There's some interesting facts, though, not included, though, as relates to the judge. Someone in the crime family was tasked with finding a judge that could be bought the judge, his name was Frank J. Wilson. He was recruited specifically because he wasn't a judge that anyone would ever suspect of being corrupted because mm. corruption in the Chicago courts at the time were, were pretty prolific. So this Frank J. Wilson was actually someone that uh, was not considered someone that you would think had been bought, which I thought was an interesting parallel to, to Michael. During the late 1980s, federal investigators uh, started an Operation Gambat, which was an extensive investigation into decades of corruption and mob ties inside the Chicago court system. In February 1990, fearing prosecution for his actions during the 1977 low trial, that's the trial that Harry the Hook Ailman was on trial for, retired Judge Frank J. Wilson shot himself to death in his Arizona retirement home. In 1997, Harry Ailman was convicted of the Logan murder. This is when he was retried. He was sentenced to 300 years in state prison. Good Lord. So reading it to the story, you could see where the the blood would drain out of Carlos' face a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what an, an amazing story to just stick under his little skin. Let it just uh, get in his craw there and uh, make him worry for the rest of his life about it. Yeah, but also for Michael to know, I mean, uh, does Michael know what happened to old Judge Wilson? That, that's not an auspicious mm. ending for him. Is it foreshadowing for our Michael? Yeah. Or maybe it is. I mean, Michael, remember, Michael's suicidal, if suicidal thoughts, even as uh, recently as last week. This is not a show that's that's afraid to to do something dramatic. No one thought Adam could die. You know, like that would that would end the show, right? We were like, no, that can't possibly be, right? So, who knows? Season two could end up with Michael dead, and that would be insane, but also probably realistic. I gotta ask a question. Like, the, listening to Carlo talk here, he's asking his dad about the trial, and it seems that he thinks he was honestly acquitted. Is it possible that Carlo is so dimwitted or so obtuse? to the world around him that he doesn't realize the trial was rigged in order for him to get off of that murder trial, murder charge. Yes, Alex, I do believe it is possible. He's that Tim wedded. That's shocking to me. That's shocking to me that he hasn't done the math, that knowing how hard the evidence was against him, that he doesn't suspect 
there was hanky panky there on on his part. He's putting all this together. Like reading that Harry the Hook story, Carlos should have been thousand times more worried like otherwise he's just like he's like caveman lawyer just realizing like a slow light bulb going off like on his head you ever see like those light bulbs that take a little while to like heat up before it pings like that's the kind of light bulb over carlo's head like he's really just starting to put it together dude you've had a year yeah but i'm thinking think about him when he was sitting at the table with all of his buddies and when he was still gloating about everything he had his head open like a watermelon mm -hmm, all that like that guy's in there that guy is who he really is and while he is definitely subdued in this season uh i i mean everything about him with quiet moments right he just says like well can i just like come back when the hotels are all built and everything like he doesn't get it you know he doesn't see the big picture and uh and he's he's easily confused and and um yeah i think made paranoid he that's the perfect tack to take with him is make him paranoid because that's the only way to kind of he's got like all this energy inside of him and it's bad energy but you could make it manipulate it into being so worried about stuff like watching the security cameras you kind of can take him out of play Yes, 100%. And it's a skill that Michael shares that I think we've seen Olivia shares, right? I mean, the same way that Olivia seems to know exactly what makes Michael tick, even if Michael doesn't want to admit it. Uh, Michael, in this scene, this is in just in just a one sentence, do you know who Harry the Hook is? You remind me of him, has kind of sent Carlo into the spiral uh, of his own thing. But it just struck me as so funny that he could honestly think that he was acquitted of this heinous, heinous murder. It really makes you wonder about him just in terms of like, like he was, he's so easily can retell this story of self-defense when it's like Carlo. That he believes it, that he honestly yes, believes it himself. He believes his own shit, you right. know, it's your gets high on his own supply. He's like that, right? Like he's just telling his own tales and then being like, yeah, that's the facts. That's what happened. And you're like, Carlo. Is Michael drinking at the bar here because he's just feeling himself, feeling real good after putting Carlo in his place? Or is he doing it because he knows Jimmy's going to see he's there and he's he wants to talk to Jimmy? Oh, I think he's baiting Jimmy. This conversation was painful as hell. Painful as hell. But I'm so happy they had it, though, because it is the single question I have asked myself so many times since the show began. A lot of times you watch a drama and you think, if that person had just done something differently, the show wouldn't exist. He asked the question... That is the true question to ask about why we have a show. If he just hadn't left that night, if he just hadn't gotten left the police station and told Adam to get back in the car, would Adam be alive? Would any of season one have happened? Would the collateral damage and the fallout have been so great? Maybe Adam does get killed, right? Maybe Jimmy's answer when he leaves to Frank and he says that I would have definitely killed him with my own bare hands. That is probably 100% true, and I don't doubt it for, for a second. But everything else that happened, the, the poor schlub who wanted a boat who's dead, who's trying to blackmail him, right, Charlie's right. career, uh, Eugene, Kofi, all these people's lives would be unaffected in the, in the tremendous way that they were affected. Michael leaving the police station that night set all of that into motion. So let's listen to this question, and then we got to listen to Jimmy's answer. When Rocco died. When Adam killed Rocco. When Adam killed Rocco. Mm -hmm. 
I drove him to the police station. He was going to turn himself in that night. But then I saw you there, and I turned around. Everything that I did, everything that happened, flowed from that one moment, that one decision. If we had come forward right then, told the truth, Adam killed Rocco. What would you have done? You can hear the guilt in his voice, right? He he's he's self-flagellating here. He's sitting here drinking. You imagine he spent the last year in prison thinking about this. Maybe the entirety of season one, he was thinking about this. If I had just not left the police station. So now imagine a year later, he's finally getting to ask this question. And of all of the possible answers. Jimmy gives him the worst possible answer (laughs) from Michael's point of view that he possibly could get. Let's take a listen. If someone comes from my family, I promise that whatever you've seen or heard about me would pale in comparison to what I'm actually capable of. But this was an accident. If you and Adam had come to me with honesty and contrition, how could I have responded with violence? He was just a boy. Adam ran because he was afraid. His fear was entirely forgivable. It was your fear that got him killed. So heartbreaking to just have someone say that to you. And we don't think this is true. No, no, because when he walks away and Frank is like, really, you would have left him there? He's like, no, I would have killed him with my own hands. Mean. Jimmy, Jimmy has as good a read of people as anyone else on the show. And he knows just by asking the question, Michael already thinks the answer is my son would still be alive had I not left that night. He already suspects this answer. So Michael is just giving him confirmation bias just to make him feel like shit. It's terribly mean. Terribly mean, but also kind of delicious. It's it's pretty mean. <laughs> it's, it's pretty mean. But if you're also hurting and you're also a violent gangster, this is pretty easy catharsis. This is a this is like a layup yeah. basket of catharsis of I can make this guy feel like shit by telling him, no, your your son would still be. If you had given me the chance to prove to you I'm not the monster that you think I am, your preconceived notions, your fears, you didn't give me that chance. So you robbed your son of still being alive. It's easy for him to say. Of course, that's exactly what Jimmy's going to say, because it's just running. It's just rubbing salt and dirt in the open wound that Michael has in his soul. Why do you think that Jimmy asks Michael, what did you see at the police station? It's all a setup for you assume the worst about me. That fear and those assumptions killed your kid in the end. That went the whole theater of it, going to get the Bushmills and pulling the pouring the two drinks. The smile he gives when he asks them the question, mm-hmm. like it's all part. It's like a three minute clip of just theater that Jimmy feels like he's been waiting to have the opportunity to say. 
It's incredibly cruel. And so for him to have to look at his face, it's like, you can't even give me that. You can't even give me that. I had no choice but to run. Right. You know, you you can't even give me that at the end of this whole thing. You know, as much as we think that the rodeo scene was like, oh, my God, how cruel, how what the torture of it all and, and all that kind of stuff. But man, that's this scene, this scene at the bar. I, I mean, I feel like it lashed his heart in a way that just, ouch, it hurt so bad. Right. I clipped the, the very beginning of that conversation on, on Jimmy's answer starts with with Michael saying you would have killed him I know you would have killed him and Jimmy says I think you wanted to leave the police station I don't think you wanted to to have Adam come forward I think you're just using me as an excuse and then he goes into the clip that I played of anyone who comes from my family I'm gonna kill but not in accident not a boy not in Adam's case I would kill anyone who would come from my family but not in Adam's case that was a mistake that was a young man scared i understand i wouldn't do anything your fear michael your fear killed your son it's because it's your responsibility all the while no michael did what he had to do there's no chance jimmy doesn't kill him with his own bare hands which is what he literally says to frank like 10 feet away michael already blames himself so jimmy is just giving confirmation to michael's worst fear here it's exactly what we were just talking about about like what do you get out of being right what do you get out of like being stubborn what do you get out of like fighting instead of just being cool you know it's it's like in this case it's like god jimmy like it's like he 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 will forever be this man who would rather you know put the screws to the other person just just to see them suffer you know just it doesn't bring anybody back just to tell this lie it just it just continues to torture the other person and it's just it's 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 the gina and jimmy way let's talk about the baxters and jimmy specifically about his plans for the future uh the episode opens really with jimmy and carlo and some of the henchmen standing on this land that's across the mississippi river from the french quarter based on the western being across the way in the river jimmy is looking at the french quarter from algiers point which is if you look at a map the area that's literally right at the turn which i didn't realize the reason it's called the crescent city is because the city is built around the bend in the mississippi river so it looks like a crescent um so the area across the river from the french quarter is called algiers point so that's where he's planning this 12 acre deluxe high-end residential and shopping and entertainment district state's largest casino he says a high-end a high-end hotel and to top it all off baxter family suites on top of the building with panoramic views of the entire city where they literally can be kings of the castle in what he is calling the Baxter District. It sounds amazing. And Carlo's response to you, you said it before, was, can I just come back when it's all built? Yeah, like, can you just build it for me, please? Can I just, like, bring my stuff when it's ready? <laughs> As a dad, I like that Jimmy took him to task here. And he says, he's like, oh, he's just so disappointed in he's this like, dude. Got, he's got no vision. Don't you want to build anything? Like, he he's his mother's son. He doesn't have this legacy building. He doesn't have the want to build a thing and see it stand. This is the complexity of Jimmy. Like, Jimmy is this bloodthirsty fool that is just playing with Michael's heart in the bar. But then he's also being kind of a dad in a lot of ways that I think, at least I identify with, I think a lot of parents identify with, like, wanting your kid to do something, right? And wanting to share a vision with you and build something together and, and let's build a legacy, right? Let's let's build something together, a company together, a, a district together. Like, Carlo's response is shrug. 
I feel for Jimmy in this scene. He's got, he's laying out this grandiose plan, and the response is, "Can I just come back when it's all built?" <laughs> it's it's so, such a disappointment, you know, for him to have these kids who just do not understand what this is all about. And for him, I mean, I think they did a great job in season one of actually explaining this whole oyster building empire that he was doing, and that Jimmy comes from nothing and built everything. And Gina is probably bringing the the more corrupt side of things. Like, I think there's a fair shot had Jimmy married someone else, he might have been on the straight and narrow building businesses, you know, right. doing real estate and, and stuff like that. Maybe he does do it with some coercion or whatever, but I don't think it would have gotten to whatever we, whatever we think this organized crime is. Because I'm going back to my earlier comment. You said maybe you don't need to see all the organized crime. I... I haven't even heard about the organized crime. What is it that this man does? Well, I mean, I, we don't really know. Right? All these families up the East Coast doing what? Well, it sounds like classic Italian New York pre pre the seven pre the seventies getting into the drugs and prostitution where right. it was controlling teamsters controlling sanitation businesses labor right. bracketeering right protection money everyone's paying him money in the quarter but we have no evidence of that zero they never go pick up money from businesses they never come and and we know he's a big construction around. guy though right he's he's we got do. a whole construction thing and and that is a very tropey place for mafia mm-hmm. families to be in the construction in the construction areas of business i would like them to delve just a little bit into what their organized crime is i i'm just a little curious i watched the outfit last night loved it it's a great movie you guys should definitely check it out the the cool thing i guess if you want to say <laughs> about stuff like mafia movies and stuff like that is the hierarchy it, it is how they're doing what they're doing i think is what draws people to want to watch movies like that right where it's like you kind of want to understand how organized crime runs like how do they possibly do it and they don't ever really delve into what are the baxters doing the last thing on this just this opening scene is for for jimmy this idea of building baxter district that it would stand to the world not just to new orleans not just to louisiana not just to people in the united states but to the world as a beacon of hard work and what hard work can get you and and driving home this phrase that we know from fia was jimmy's calling card for them growing up this idea that the world could be your oyster i appreciate the idea of building something as a monument to hard work I'm curious if this is part of the motivation theme for the episode, right? This this district is Jimmy's motivation, right? He's he's overlooking stuff like Big Mo moving into the Grand Rain. He's not freaking out yet anyway about Michael Desiato being out of prison because he's got his eye on what he considers a bigger prize, and that bigger prize is getting mayor the city's permission in order to develop this 12 acres in order to build his Baxter district. That's his motivation, and he's trying to keep his eye on that prize despite other people interfering with it or 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 trying to you know direct redirect his his attention but that's his motivation and as a monument to hard work i came from nothing and look what i have built more than a baxter house more than a series of restaurants that he owns more than an oyster business that services all the other restaurants in this in the city This Baxter District is a crowning achievement for a guy who came from nothing. 
I appreciate that. I I identify with that aspect of Jimmy. Yeah, it's it's a part that you can actually admire about him that he wants to build this empire, and that's that's the big difference I feel like between him and Gina. Like Gina feels like she's about destruction and about sort of reigning over an empire, but no one wants to build it. No one wants to do the hard work to actually create the empire. I'm curious where Baxter money comes from. I'm curious if it comes from Gina's side of the family. Maybe that's why she feels like she has some right to have a little bit more, uh, you know, behind the scenes, kind of going behind his back and doing things that she wants to do. I'm wondering what their dynamic is when it comes to that financial part. Well, their dynamic is definitely on display in this episode and never more so than when they (laughs) go to Mayor Charlie's office, because as, as we stated, the bid was given to the Baxter family and their group of investors to develop this 12 acres during the last mayorship. But the approval process, the last step before they could develop it, is still not yet done. And so it has to be done now under Mayor Charlie. And Mayor Charlie wants to open up the bidding process because he's got some concerns that it was not followed, that procedures were not followed correctly the first time. And as you can imagine, this sets off Gina and Jimmy, but in very different ways. Let's take a listen to their clip, what I'm calling good cop, bad cop, from their time in the mayor's office. Well, who are we hurting? The people who should be building these complexes. The ones whose neighboring communities will be ravaged by gentrification. They're the ones who supported a platform of equal participation and equal distribution of resources. Resources like clubs in the French Quarter? Oh, uh, let, let's stay on topic, shall we? Well, that was just me helping out a enterprising constituent. Oh, well, if only we could get as much support as that drug-dealing bitch from the Lower Ninth. Gina. Why don't you name your price so we can get out of here? I think what my wife is trying to say, Mr. Mayor, is that our family's support can be very, very valuable. And our animus can be incredibly destructive. And what I'm saying is, I made promises to the people of this city. Helping rich folk get richer wasn't one of them. Now, we know Charlie is willing to play ball, and we know that he's willing to make a deal if it benefits him and benefits the city, right? He 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 makes a deal with Big Mo. If she's going to get her the drug overdoses in the lower ninth, he's going to support her buying the Grand Rain. Why not even try and offer some kind of deal here? Is it just because it's the Baxters uh, on principle? He doesn't want to be making a deal with them? I mean, I think we could come at it from a couple different angles. We could trust him, you know, on on his word that it truly is that he just wants a fair, transparent process because this is like a you know, really huge deal for the city. It'd be one of his very first things that he's doing with the city. And, and it does fly in the face of what his campaign promises were. So if you just want to take it at face value... He's simply trying to come in in a you know a really honest, open, transparent mayorship, right? So that could be it. But I think that it's fair to say he certainly has bias against the Baxters. Would not want them to have an, an even bigger foothold in the city that he's trying to control. That would be a great deal of power for the family to have. Well, he calls it a key to the city, right? When he's talking to Michael later, yeah, on. he he knows that Michael went to prison because of. The the Baxters. Maybe not the specifics, right? No one seems to know the specifics. We're no even seeing this does. comment in the Facebook group. Yeah. Why did 
Should Michael go to prison? This is a comment we've seen 17 times in our Facebook group. Well, we don't actually know. The answer is we know we know it was because of rigging the trial. That's the reason Nancy wanted him in jail. The actual reason, again, this all goes back to our very first episode of the season. We still don't know what the world knows about why Michael went to prison. Let's jump to Charlie and Michael's conversation so we can finish off Charlie before we get back to Gina and Jimmy. Because coming out of this conversation in the mayor's office, Charlie has a real straight face here. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't blink. He stands up to the Baxters, but he is propelled to go see his friend because now he's got a concern because the Baxters know he can't be bought now. So the natural thing is they're going to try and scare him. So let's listen to Michael and Charlie talk talking about what might be out there that might be able to scare Charlie. They can't buy me, so I'm guessing their next move is to try to scare me. Do they know anything about me that could scare me? No. <clears throat> You're in a dark place, and I'm sorry, but I got to ask. Did you ever tell anyone anything that I should be worried about? You're the only friend I've got left. You know, I would do anything to protect you. That is the least answery answer I've ever heard. <laughs> Charlie nods solemnly there, like, thank He's you, like, brother. Mm. But I think there's also part of that nod is, like, motherfucker, you did not answer my question. Did you hear me act that out? Like, could you hear me close my eyes? And I like, did. Mm-hmm. I heard the, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt it. I felt it. <laughs> I think that if I was Charlie, I'd be like, thank you. And also one more time, have you said anything? (laughs) Or maybe that's answer enough for Charlie. For Charlie, you know, Charlie, Charlie hasn't gotten where he is. Charlie isn't successful as he is or isn't as successful as he is by allowing loose ends to fuck him. Maybe listening to Michael's answer is all Charlie needs to start playing defense that maybe that is confirmation that he knows michael well enough maybe that's confirmation enough for charlie that he actually needs to start shoring up his paying attention and 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 start and start building a wall around him i hope he does i mean i hope he has you know that much awareness i feel like he does I i think he's the savviest person on the show Right. He doesn't feel like his head's in the sand at all. I feel like he's he's got his eyes open and he's paying attention and he knows all the players, more players, actually, than probably Michael does. He does understand what's going on. But I worry. I definitely worry because this is the setup. This is this is practically like walking into the police station moment. Right. Your friend has asked you straight to your face. Now you've chosen to walk away without giving the real information. This is certainly going to bite you in the ass. Yeah. I mean, we've we've been asking since the season premiere, what will be the thing that destroys this friendship finally? Charlie has been and remained a great friend to Michael through thick and thin. When he says, when he says to Charlie there, you're the only friend I got left, he's not bluffing. He's not, he's not self-deprecating. 
I mean, he's got Senator Grandma, who is acting out of maybe duty, but not out of friendship. He's got Fia, who maybe that's a friend, but I don't know if you're going to be relying on the teenage single mother as your lifeline friend in the world, who, by the way, is the daughter of your moral enemy. Mm, Charlie's it. And Michael, with every statement he says to Charlie, is maybe putting a nail in their coffin for when that's eventually exposed. Yeah, I think this was a really bad decision on Michael's part (laughs) and feels a lot like he's learned very little about you can't keep putting people in bad positions because you're hiding information. At the same time, Olivia's words, because of the heavy hand with which she has acted with Michael, if she says to him, you can't tell, you can't tell Charlie or else, you know, deals off Mm -hmm. and Charlie's exposed and everything. What is he supposed to do? Right. If, if, if she knows that he is having conversations with Carlo in the park, then she knows that Charlie's at his house right now. Right. Like, we didn't get to see the follow-up there because she went to go see Nancy in the timeline of the episode. But someone is telling her that Charlie Figaro, the mayor of New Orleans, went to Michael's house or went to Senator Grandma's house where Michael is staying. If they don't have that house bugged, they at least know that he was there. That's going to be a whole conversation. You know, she. what did you and Fia talk about? What did you and Carl talk about? What did you and Charlie talk about? I agree with you. This is rocking a hard place shit all over again. The problem is that you feel like He's already gone through this and he's already been, you know, like beat to death over keeping all the information to himself. So this this is one of those moments, though. Do you do you tell her? Do you don't? Because the whole story has been there'll be consequences for whatever you say, no matter what. Either way, there's going to be a consequence. So now do you go down the same path or do you learn a lesson and say, okay, like at least, I don't know, wink or something. And maybe it's enough that he didn't answer. Like you said, Maybe between them, between friends, dodging the question like that was enough for Charlie to to nod and get it, you know? And, and I think that it's fair to say that's probably true. Between two best friends from when they were six years old, remember the whole story mm-hmm. of how Michael, like, saved him out of the water and all that stuff at camp? I mean, to me, he probably could just learn from body language, like, you're not safe. I hope. I hope. I hope. Well, I think the non for a guy who's so specific as Michael is, mm-hmm. his non answer should be a red flag to Charlie, who knows him better than anyone else. I who sure knows? Hope so. But the problem sure is the only so. problem is if Charlie wants to hear an answer instead of instead of hearing the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only problem is if Charlie doesn't want to hear the truth, he just wants to hear the right answer that he wants to hear, then maybe he's not going to pick up the non-answer in Michael's voice. That's the danger, right? But if he's paying attention and being objective, then he's going to hear the non-answer in that in that answer. I think so. I, but I would put that on the board that I that I I think it's fair to say they've been friends for, you know, God, 40 some years or whatever. We're at 50 years. There's a fair shot that they could they could figure this out just through the non answer. Let's go back to the office now into that conversation. We played the good cop, bad cop, uh, you know, rigmarole with Gina and Jimmy. Surprised that Gina lost her temper and revealed her hand that her real reason for being there was because she's pissed off about Big Mo and the Grand Rain and and that those people coming into Mm -hmm. their territory. 
I think I was more surprised of, about her language. Like, I was surprised that she said that she called her a bitch. Like, I was like, mm, that feels like too much. And I know that it seems like whatever, Caroline, like these are these are all like hardened people. It just seemed way out of place in a business meeting. It seemed like she could speak with tons of venom without talking like that. And so that was actually what started just like threw me back a little bit. Like I was like, wow, you're just you're being so uncouth right now in right. a business setting that that you were not invited to this meeting. Let's start with that. Like they were all like, what the what you're coming? And I just I thought she was ineffective. So then I was like, I'm not impressed with you swearing and doing all this kind of stuff because you moved no one with your comments. So I wish she had been more savvy, more clever, more pointed in the way that she spoke to him so that it it, it could feel like it, it you know, it it actually made some movement with charlie but it didn't make make any difference because she just she sounded petty and ignorant yeah and 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 it just it seemed like a little kid just saying swears and stuff and you're like and you know you and i swear all the time we we swear all the time but we wouldn't in a business meeting so it's like mm, gina no dude wrong place wrong time but my takeaway from this is to show more the division between gina gina and jimmy which is one of our governing thoughts going all the way back to episode one of this season was that this season was going to be about the schism between Gina and Jimmy. And we know now a year later, they are they are living kind of apart. They're sharing separate bedrooms. They're leading kind of separate lives. Other than as it deals with their daughter not talking to them, they seem to be very much at odds. Every time they have any kind of business talk, they seem to be coming at it from very different points of view. Think about that conversation that Fia has with her father in the first episode. You know, Carlo and mom are different than us. They revel in the violence. They wallow and the violence were not like that. How do you do what they do? Think about the conversation between Jimmy and Big Mo about young men being, uh, you know, are so impulsive. Gina's acting impulsive here. She is acting impulsive and she's also revealing uh, an insidious racism mm -hmm. that Jimmy is a businessman dealing with a mayor who is black. Whether or not he harbors racist feelings, understands he can't allow that into the business thing. There's not a place for that at the business table. And Gina is impulsive and Gina is driven by violence first and anger first, right? I, I want to live in my anger. Anger is where I flourish. That's the clip that ends last week's episode. She's allowing that to be shown here. And that's there's no place for that at business. That's where gang members live. That's where mafia osos, that's where mafia osos type live. That's where violent people live in those kinds of comments. There's no place for that at the business table. Again, drawing that line between even when she brings up the Grand Rain before she calls her a bitch, Jimmy like puts a hand out to her and says, no, 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 no. Let's keep it like, on track on here. Topic. Stay yeah, on topic yeah, yeah. here because he understands yeah. what the business is. Her, none of her words are helping and they're only going to hurt. I'm actually quite surprised that she crashed his business meeting and didn't have a separate business meeting going behind Jimmy's back, given that they are not sharing a bedroom and not, you know, she not probably wouldn't be able to get a meeting lives. with the mayor. Well, we can think own. that, but I don't know. I don't think that Charlie's so difficult to talk to. I, I think he would, he would be more open. I think, I think she's one of those people who 
maybe that's too blatantly being in Jimmy's face to have a meeting separate from him with the mayor. But like I said, I was surprised that she just like crashed his meeting and act like a fool. It's like they almost need to give her like a drinking problem or something. You know, like they like she needs to be I think she's drunk on the violence. I think she's no, but drunk do you know, on... Do you know what I mean? Like if we yeah. were writing this character after Rocco died, it would make sense if she starts day drinking and she starts drinking more and she starts showing up at stuff like his business meetings, talking shit like this and being out of control and, and talking like she did at the support meeting. Like you almost need to like give her like an extra something because she's so filterless and she so like doesn't care what the what you know she leaves in her in her wake when she says stuff like that. You almost got to give her like one more reason, you know? I how about this though? In in the wake of Rocco dying, a year on, she looks at her husband as being weak as being ineffectual to have prevented it and to have swiftly rem- remediated it, to not having solved it or made it better in a way that she found acceptable, that she has, I think, snapped a little bit. And and go back to those grief counseling sessions and the second one in particular where she says, I, you know, I don't want to get to acceptance. I want to get to anger and I want to stay there and I want to live there. And that's where I flourish. I think what we're seeing with Gina is her no longer being the gazpacho warming up subservient type. I think those days are done. And I think every incre- every minute of every episode increasingly is her trying to exercise her strength to supplant Jimmy. This was the conversation we had in the very first episode. How long will Jimmy remain the head of this family, given the, the setup, even in that episode? Certainly here in this scene, but we got to play the next scene where they get back to the hotel and Jimmy and Gina are not yet finished. Holy smokes, that scene... Let's, I, I don't have, I, because I, the clip would have been too long, but the setup for this is he pulls her off to the side and, and wants to know about the business and wants to know why she can't let the grand rain go. He's got his eyes on a bigger prize because she can't understand why he would allow that kind of person to encroach on their territory. She says, if my name, my family name used to mean something, Conti, if this was the Conti house, no enemies would ever be encroaching on our territory. And he has, and this is where Jimmy snaps and he grabs her, he grabs her purse and essentially drags her into one of the hotel suites. And we get this conversation. How dare you? You will not tell me how to run my business. It's our business, and I most certainly will. If you're really that uh, bothered about this nonsense across the street, I can have Frankie take care of it. They took a shot at Carlo. Uh And the shooter was disposed of. You disgust me. Move. Calm down. Move! Calm down. Move! Oh, you want to fuck me? Why don't you just let Frankie take care of that, too? 
Holy shit! Holy shit! Yeah. Now I cut out of there almost two minutes of him of him holding her back and yeah, up against that him, was saying, so intense. "Calm down, calm down." That but was it's so wicked. It did become sexual, though. Yes, he, I was like, start- "Oh my!" I literally said out loud, "Oh my god, are they gonna have sex?" Like I literally said that. I was like, oh. "But then her Frankie line, Mike." I like barfed on the floor. I was like, "No!" Like that was so bad. So. So he starts to like grind against her, and it definitely felt like I was like, they're gonna fuck. This is gonna be an anger fuck. Like they're gonna break furniture as they have sex. But she and she says that she's like, oh yeah, I know what you want, and then she completely cucks him. Now you can't do that to Jimmy. I don't think without. I mean, he doesn't know what to do, and he actually lets her go, and she walks away. She got what she needed in that moment to get away from him, but that's gonna stay with him. She has a way of lighting bombs like that and just uh, hucking them behind her as she walks. Yeah, it's Angela, like, I mean, Angela, it's Angela Bassett, right, from uh, that movie where she sets Ooh. the gift that she sets the fire and walks away. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Listen, that was a lot. You know, knowing that it could get to a point of them having angry sex like that and her just dismissing him like, I don't want you. I don't need you. I'm not turned on by you. I don't care. And we can all tell he is turned on by her. Then it's like you are like, you know, shit on the bottom of my shoe. I could give a crap about you. Yeah, he's going to go need to lift some bumpers on the back of cars. Uh, I think Frankie should stay out of his view for a while yeah. too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean to say nothing of because remember we have all this stuff where she talks to Frankie behind his back which he learned yes. last season and really set him back on his heels. This cuckolding of him is mm is dangerous and is a dangerous game it's a dangerous game for frank's life for frankie's life if nothing else like she doesn't seem to give a shit but like he's going to kill that man just to preserve (laughs) his manliness and his honor his manly honor back up though when he when she says the line about the contis and essentially is calling him weak he grabs her kind of by like scruffs her by the collar and her bag he's panting so hard when he drags her into that room i don't think we've seen jimmy lose it like that except for when he kills the bird which was awful that scene was so terrible and it was an escalation it was the same kind of escalation though he was trying to get the bird out of the cage remember well back up even further first back up even further first he watched that bird remember he watched it in the cage and he would comment to frankie about it like look this bird it does this it does that it's that that to me parallels like we have uh gina being the bird and being like watching her having to sit through that meeting and and being like look this look what this look what this girl's doing like check what she's doing like it's that sort of like observing and watching and monitoring and then grabbing and do it and like acting out well like, then he, there was then a he tries to force pattern. it out of the cage and it won't leave the yes. cage so yeah. he snaps because it won't do what he's telling it to do and so he bashes it to death which was so fucking freaky well here's the thing so jimmy has this long fuse and jimmy jimmy doesn't choose violence first because it's bad business. And I think Jimmy first is this businessman who has a horrendous, violent, violent temper that he will resort to if pushed or if he's triggered 
Whereas Gina, I think, chooses violence first and chooses business savviness second. Jimmy's the opposite. They're literally complete opposite of each other. So he's pushed here just like he was pushed to the bird because the bird wouldn't do what he wanted after observing it for so long. He bashes it to death. Gina has to watch it. She can push Jimmy and she knows she can push him. Like any sociopathic violent person, she's only going to be able to push him so far before he does to her what he did to the bird. There is a long fuse, but there, there is certainly a fuse at which point it will go off when it comes to Gina. I agree with you. Unfortunately, it was very unsettling. The, it was. It was. I mean, yeah. it I really. I was talking out loud. I was. I was talking out loud to the screen the whole time. Down. Oh my calm god! <laughs> because I was like, oh my god, this calm is changing down. so much. Michael Marie. I mean, that's what it was, enough. though. That's that what it was, enough. though. It, the whole, it was a whole fucking mood. But it was. Oh my god! But her complete and total dismissive just fuck off you know it was like <gasps> yeah you know oh. that he he was like uh, hard as a fucking rock and and yeah. she was just like eh, you know yeah i'll take, have, I'll Frankie care. take care she of doesn't it. need him she doesn't need him and she wants him to know that i mean you're you're exactly right that this is a dangerous game and she really is i believe underestimating her husband but the thing is i think he's underestimating her i mean she is willing to come into a mayor meeting and you know, say bitch and, and and do all this kind of stuff. I mean, she is taking it up a notch too. He better find some ways to be able to mitigate all all she's going to do because she is a massive liability. I, I think she has no problem going out there and sicking some of the henchmen onto other bidders or whatever that could mess this up for them. Well, I mean, think back to the process, right? He says he says in the office with them there were no other bidders. But when he's talking to Michael, we reveal there actually was one other bidder. That bidder disappeared on the eve of the bids being due and was never heard from again, which is a whole other story. There's one where you iced that competition and no one else was competitive. It's a whole other thing to it's a whole next level to learn. In fact, there was another bidder and they were disappeared. That, that's an escalation that's not, over. That's not good. <laughs> that's an escalation over. They were just no one else interested, maybe because they didn't want to tangle with the Baxters. Someone had the cojones to go step to the Baxters and paid for it by being disappeared. You don't get more blatant racketeering than that these two are explosive and they are absolutely playing and it comes back other. to the episode theme of motivations they both mm. have very different motivations but gina is not motivated by what's motivating jimmy to do what he does jimmy is certainly not on the same wavelength as what's motivating gina to do what she's doing she's protecting territory she's she's trying to expand power that's going to reach ahead because they are sharing the same resources. Their same resources are the Baxter family criminal organization resources. And they are at war now with each other to achieve their own goals using the same. It's not like they have dedicated men. There's not right. two Frankies, right? They're using the same Frankie to achieve two different goals. That's going to become a problem real quick. I think that's an excellent theme to move into Big Mo, Little Mo, and everything going on over there because we're talking about using the same resources for two different projects. We called it, right? We called the idea that the cash that may be outlaid for this big drug purchase in Houston may come into conflict with the money she's going to need to buy the Grand Rain. If not for Gina Baxter threatening Dick with a 10% purchase 
price bump and threatening to kill him or in or jeopardize his long-term health interests doesn't seem like she actually would have needed that drug money back but as things go she does what's your whole take on this what was your take on on trey and little mo getting into the fight and and allowing that whole thing that was very tactless that's impulsivity by little mo right that's young men being impulsive I was disappointed in those two. I mean, the stakes were so high and for them to be just so just ridiculous to get into some little squirmish with on it with one another like that. Just just foolishness. Well, I, for I Trey, so not right. But for cousin Trey, though, he's worried about his life here. Right. You could see where his motivation yeah, I is. I get it. But, you know, it, it just it's stupid, stupid to throw punches in public. Stupid, stupid. You know, you have this huge duffel bag of money in the car. You've got all this stuff going on. The last thing you want to do is bring any attention to yourself. You keep it cool. I was disappointed in these guys. I, I thought that they were more more professional than this. Well, I mean, it makes this this comment from Big Mo at the beginning of the episode even more prescient, given how it all worked out. Let's take a listen. It's the most money I ever trusted somebody with at one time. You asking me to hand it over to unknown just don't sit right with me. Yeah, well, I know. Oh, Trey know. Trey took a five-year bid on the case that was his. You can trust him. And make him loyal. Don't make him smart. Oh. Scared money don't make money. Last time I trust you with something this big, you lost him. You fucked up. Last time. Was the last time. Go make me some money. Given how the episode works out, this whole statement becomes, this whole exchange becomes very important because she's talking about him letting Eugene go, quote unquote, letting Eugene go the last time. He's out of chances. And now he's lost this drug deal. He's lost this money. He's in jail, right? The last we see him, he's broken a cop's nose, right? The Houston, the two Houston cops. He headbutts one of them, breaking, breaking his nose. So not only is he being arrested for fist fighting and breaking the window on Woody's barbecue, he also, he assaulted a cop. That's serious jail time. That's for a gang member, out of town gang member, breaking a cop's nose. Little Mo's not coming home anytime soon. Like, and this money's in the fucking wind. Yeah, this is, well, and you've got, you've set this whole situation up now where, you know, we have little guy, little, little man, you know, who's supposed to be disappeared. And now he's the one with the money and the phone. And, and it's he's like, going to have to come home. And he's, but he's like a ghost, you know, like he can't exist. But like, ah, what do you do? You know? Yeah, he I can't don't know. answer the phone. He can't talk to Big Mo. He can't be there, you know. But what do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because let's back up to when Trey shows up at the house, right, uh, at the Evans house, and we he sees Aunt Sheila. We we got some in we got some information on this family tree this episode because I think a lot of people have been wondering is Little Mo Big Mo's son or what's the family relation there? We knew that both last we knew that his name was Morrow, right, from the scene last year. He was Trey Morrow under the computer. Now that makes two Trey Morrows in the family when Little Mo sees Aunt Sheila 
and they go back and forth a little bit. She asks him, well, how's your real favorite aunt? Meaning Big Mo. And we learned in this episode, Big Mo's real name is Monique Morrow, because that's the name on the lease that's on the table in the Bufas in the Desire headquarters. So we know her name is Monique Morrow. We've got that confirmed. And it also confirms that little Mo is her nephew, not her son. So we got some family trees straightened out, which I was happy for, though they didn't make it clear. If you were paying attention, you understand the family trees now. So I thought that for, for my little OCD brain, I like having a good family tree sorted out. But also the fact that he's a nephew and not a son does maybe make him much more expendable to her. The amount to which she will hang her neck out to protect him or to rescue him from the Houston police is probably much less as a nephew than it would be if she was her son. Probably. I'm trying to think that one through. I'm trying to think how you said it. <laughs> you know, well, the, the fact that, yeah, he's family, but he's less family than if she was her son, which I think changes the dynamic a bit. So it, it does. It 100 percent does. And it, it allows those threats to be more meaningful. Yeah, no, for sure. When now when she says that you're out of chances last time was last time, don't fuck up again. Like, you got to take that seriously if you're not the son, if you're the nephew. <laughs> yeah, and by yeah. the way, you fucked up like you fucked up in the worst way you possibly could have fucked up over just. God, you know, it really, it really drives me crazy because it's like, God, you're, you're supposed to be like, like literally her right hand man. Like, what did you do? On the you verge know? of like, on the verge of like a big business deal. Yes. That's the thing though, right? Little Mo wants to play a business, whereas Big Mo is doing business, right? Big Mo is actually trying to be a businesswoman. This exhibited that Little Mo was actually more playing a business. Right. He's not actually ready to be a businessman because he's yeah. still letting little kid, little like kid indiscretions. It's like snowman. How you say that? I always say the word funny. Businessman. <laughs> businessman. <laughs> he's, he's little Mo businessman. He's little. Of, of the businessman. Of, of the, the businessman. Business, family. Of the businessman family. <laughs> you know, the businessman from well, Hartford. We did. So Mike and I did a 52 week of Christmas podcast. And anytime he would say this snowman. <laughs> Yes. Snowman's Mr. Frosty, Mrs. Snowman. Frosty, Frosty the Snowman of the Snowman family. <laughs> exactly. Don't you know them? They come around every winter. Uh, yeah, I mean, what he should have done was push Trey out of the way and just gotten in the goddamn car and driven yes. away. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. But his yes. ego and his bravado and his <sighs> the same shit that motivates Carlo, the same stuff that's motivating Gina, this alpha dog bullshit instead of doing what business requires. <sighs> drives me crazy but good good on eugene for getting out of the car and getting out of dodge right because at some point the cops are going to look around at the car right in front of them and they're going to be like oh there's a little kid sitting in this car with a giant suitcase what's in there so i give it up to little gene eugene to have had the forethought to get out of town but now he's taking that money and that phone back to sheila's house and aunt sheila's gonna have to clean up with it let's talk about aunt sheila for a second because she Poor aunt sheila <laughs> So the family name is Evans, right? Because we know the principal calls Eugene, who is Justin in this new world, Mr. Evans. So I think that makes him Justin Evans. And if Sheila is supposed to be his mom, that would make her Sheila Evans. She knows what's what, right? She knows that the money, the suitcase of cash is not for a 73 DeVille. She knows Big Mo is into selling drugs. She speaks truth to power. I really liked Aunt Sheila in that scene where they're all in the living room. I liked her very much. I most liked her. And I thought of you in the scene when Trey goes to go get food and Little Mo is staring at Eugene. And Eugene is looking terrified staring at Little Mo. And she doesn't budge. 
She doesn't leave. She like mama bear looks at little Mo until he like breaks his gaze and walks away. Mm -hmm. I like that. She stood there and she kind of put herself between Eugene and little Mo as much as she could. She tried to protect him in that scene. I like that. That made me like her. Yeah, it made me feel safe with her, which makes me feel like Eugene can be safe with her. I Right now, though, I'm like, what? what? I mean, I, here's hoping that Eugene makes it all the way home to Aunt Sheila, but I don't feel like that's going to happen. I think he's at, back at Aunt Sheila's at the end of the episode. I think he's in his room at her house because they're drawing stuff on that wall and stuff. I mean, more like can talk to her. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think he's going to have to tell her at some point what happened. There is no part of this show that ever says someone is going to come clean (laughs) and is going to be honest when we wish they would. I wish... He would, but I don't, I don't think so. That's not the pattern. The big, the thing is big Mo is going to come on down to Houston if she can't get someone on the phone, right? She's going to have to come because she knows the last location. And we're assuming, I'm assuming Sheila is Monique's sister. It seemed that way because it even seemed like when he, she asked about, like, asked, like, about your aunt kind of your thing. Your other, your real favorite aunt. Mm-hmm, like, that whole thing, that all came off very much like two sisters being like, mm-hmm. Well, even well, the way she says, know. oh, she's going to buy a club so to hide the fact that she sells drugs in the night. Like, that's just like, like sisters say to each other, it's, right? It was sister shade. I felt sister yeah, for shade. Sure, for sure. Yeah. It felt like, <laughs> felt like sibling shade for sure. It so, did. so, you know, Big Mo going to come down and see her sister and be like, where is everyone? I, you know, Last last I heard was I had a nephew down here. I've got a little boy who you're acting as your son. I, I'm assuming Big no, Big Mo knows that Eugene is there. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe Little Mo kept that really as a secret, even though it, it seemed like she understood Eugene wasn't really dead, that he didn't right. really get away, that Little Mo out- orchestrated that. We never mm-hmm. saw the year jump. In in the year, did they ever have a conversation? Oh, by the way, I sent Eugene to to your sister's house. It's a little bit like Olivia. It's hard to believe that Big Mo doesn't know the goings-ons everywhere because she has to in order to stay safe herself and know, you know, and be successful in what she's doing. She's She's got to kind of know where everybody is at all times. It felt like she was saying to him, that was your gimme. She said you screwed up and all that kind of stuff. But it was like, we're going to not talk about that and we're going to not discuss what you really did. But I know. Yeah. I have to think she knows. Like Olivia knew about, knew about the baby. Well, and Sheila even says something like, you might as well tell me what she's up to because I'm going to hear anyway. Like, maybe they're not the best of friends. And maybe Sheila, you know, she's living a more wholesome life. And so she doesn't approve of what her sister does, of what of what Big Mo does. I'm sure that came up in the family newsletter at Christmas or something. <laughs> right. I'm so sure. <laughs> uh, I like how Sheila stares at that suitcase in the living room like it's a bomb because mm-hmm. it's the same kind of look Eugene gives it when he finally he like opens up the zipper as if it's like one of those scenes in like uh like you got to detonate the bomb. Which wire do you cut? He opens Definitely. up the suitcase and looks at the cat with the same kind of look of terror on his face like it's literally going to maybe jump up and bite him. It's such a huge responsibility. And you know that if you even get near it, you, you know, you're you're culpable for what the, the results are with this bag. So I would want to stay far away from it, too. I found it particularly funny, uh, Roderick, who is the drug dealer who we've been waiting on in this episode, that he was stuck because of travel baseball. This is a total <laughs> aside. But the idea of this these these big, important men with their big suitcase of cash having to wait for travel baseball to be finished and for him to get back to town <laughs> really made me laugh. As someone who was just at a track meet until midnight just a few days ago, really made me laugh. The the drug deal that would have to have waited for me to get home from, uh, you know, West Point. Uh, from See, a track but meet. I love that. I love two parts of that. One. One part of it is that 
people doing everyday things all around you could be a drug dealer. Right. I like that kind of feel. And I like the feel, too, that that dealing drugs is so just like a part of what these guys do that they just go about everything else completely normally because it's just one aspect of what they do. You know, they're also the little league coach. They don't you know, but they also happen to deal drugs. But it's all, you know, just in a day's work. Most shows, if you deal drugs, that's all you do. Right. Like there's no there's no time when you're not a drug dealer. Like the entire show is just like around you, like laying on like mattresses in an abandoned house or something. This is like, no. What about the drug dealers who are like go to work every day and also coach your little league? Right. The motherfucker to come home. He could have a batting lineup in his back pocket when he shows up for this drug deal. When he shows up to, at, to Woody's barbecue, he's going to he's going to have his little baseball hat on, you know. Uh, exactly. Let me talk about Woody's Barbecue a little bit. So this Woody's Barbecue that we're seeing here is actually a real barbecue place, but it's actually a real barbecue place that exists in Los Angeles. This is one of several Woody's Barbecue places. It was the original location of what now there are, I think, four or five locations in Los Angeles. This one is located at 3446 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. You could go to woodysbarbecuela.com if you want to see pictures and learn more about the place. The interesting thing is uh, there are four locations now. The original owner, his name was Woodrow Woody Phillips Jr. He was born in 1941 in Louisiana. So I thought that was a fun little connection to the show. He actually passed away on New Year's Eve uh, 2019. This location, the original Slauson location, is the one that you see in the show, the serving, you know, customers since 1975 and the little bulldog logo. It's all there. It's all there. The fish house, which you see like the corner of in this episode is in the shopping center with the Woody's barbecue. It's all there. You go see it. It's in LA. The funny thing is in, I read the eulogy that like the times put in the obituary that the times published when uh woody phillips died quoted in that article is his son his son's name is roderick so i wonder if the show is like a little shout out to woody and the and the woody family named the drug dealing travel baseball dad roderick because that's not a name you hear all the time you know like sometimes you get like a, a charity call, thing a where you get shout like out. yeah like not maybe not making him a drug dealer but maybe that maybe roderick is really into travel baseball and that's why like the thing that <laughs> that the drug dealer in the show has who he knows i thought it was a little bit of a personality uh, yeah treat. i thought that was a fun little thing that it's not a houston place but we do hey just so you know there's a million woody's barbecue in houston like we have plenty <laughs> but it's funny that that physical building that makes... physical building though is actually because there is a there's there are several woody's barbecues I found them. I guarantee you we have better barbecue than L.A. <laughs> I was at several different Woody's Barbecue websites in the last 24 hours. Oh, yeah? Uh, hunting down the correct one. Were you one. at the one in Centerville with the big gun out front? It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I tracked it down. The one, the actual physical Woody's that they're using here is actually based in, L is actually a building in L.A. Uh, before we leave Desire, I just wanted to highlight, because I thought this was a great line, when Big Mo, when when Dick, Slimy Dick, is uh, trying to renegotiate and weasel out of his contract with uh, Big Mo, uh, he references that Gina said his long-term health, you know, interests were in jeopardy. And she said, well, you know, if you don't deal deal with me, your short-term health interests are going to be at issue, so you should worry about that. 
she says to him, uh, you're either going to sell to me or your heirs will. Like, she just, like, puts it out there. But I love how Big Mo is. Every episode, she has at least one line that really makes me laugh. What's fascinating to me is Big Mo spoke so pointed with that right like you knew exactly what she meant but she didn't say bitch at the end of it right like she she's is... a businesswoman mm-hmm. and this is where i'm like gina like you need to be taking notes over here big mo you're 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 scoffing at her when in reality she knows how to make a threat <laughs> that's a much better threat than things you say so just so everyone understands the clock as this episode ends, the deal that is struck is Big Mo has to match the same terms that Gina was going to give Slimy Dick for the Grand Reign. So that is an all-cash deal, including the 10% bump above what was originally agreed as the purchase price, and has to be done by the end of the week. Those are the terms that Gina had arranged with Slimy Dick, and so that's what Big Mo has. And that puts a big clock on Big Mo. She, she has a very limited amount of time to go find this money, which is floating around in Houston somewhere. I mean, I, I imagine I imagine we're gonna have to get to that in episode four. That's not gonna be able to hang around for very long because of the clock that's on there. No way. And like the the poor clock that's that's dangling around Eugene's neck. Like, oh my God, how long until you come face to face with Big Mo, friend? I I mean, the best thing for him right now might be the fact that he is in jail in Houston, uh, that she actually maybe can't get to him right away because she's definitely going to have some problems with him. Let's uh, go over some notable locations before we wrap up with Gina and Fia. Uh, I I don't know why I didn't look it up before, but we see that Desire's headquarters is a place called Bufa's. We know it's a nightclub, nightclub bar of some sort. There actually is a real place in New Orleans called Bufa's. It's located in the lower seventh ward just out outside of the French Quarter, but this is supposed to be the Lower Ninth, so I think they've changed the location, but there really is a place called Bufa's Lounge. I did some checking on Google Maps. The location of the Grand Rain, the bar that uh, Big Mo is looking to buy, is 732 Orleans Street in New Orleans. Uh, zip code is 70116. That is actually not a real address. That is not a valid address. It's actually an alley between two buildings. 730 uh, Orlean Street is the Crescent City Cigar Shop, and 734 Orlean Street is the Brilliant Ink Custom Framing Store. There is a tiny alley with a gate, and it looks like it actually has some kind of for, for sale sign on it, if you look on Google Maps, uh, what would be 732 Orlean Street, but it doesn't actually have a street address. But the interesting thing is, directly across the street and to the side is the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, which is located at 717 Orleans Street. And if you look at some of the pictures of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, it's definitely what they're using as the stand-in that the Baxter House is the stand-in for. There is the same kind of, there's a shot of the balcony that we've seen Gina and Jimmy standing at with the, with the Capitol, uh, that big building, uh, maybe it's the courthouse actually in the distance. It's all on that street. You can see the pictures, the the outside of it. Definitely, they're using the Bourbon, uh, the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, which is right across the street from the address that they're using for the Grand Rain on, on Orleans Street. So, if you're doing a walking tour of things in your honor, totally go to Orleans Street in the in the French Quarter, and you'll be able to see all these kinds of sites that they're talking about in the show. I thought that was pretty cool using Google Maps to hunt that all down. So it is. It's awesome when they when they have those landmarks like that that you can go as a fan and go check out. 
take pictures in front of all that fun stuff. On the Conti crime family. So, Gina, we learn a little bit more about the fact that she is the crime family, right? We know he's the Scottish businessman in the oysters who came from nothing, but she is the Conti crime family. There was a guy named Gregorio Conti who is credited as founding the Pittsburgh crime family. Um, but he was shot to death in 1919. His head as Capo de Tutti Capi of the Pittsburgh crime family only lasted about four years. And it's unclear that the Conti crime family continued on after that. I think there's a fun little Easter egg, though. There is a video game called Mafia, um, specifically Mafia 3, has a Marcano crime family in it, which is based on the actual New Orleans crime family, uh, the Marcello crime family. In this fictionalized video game version, there's the Marcano crime family, which is in charge of a fictionalized version of New Orleans. And one of the lieutenants in that video game in New Orleans, they call it New Bordeaux, but it's supposed to be New Orleans, is named Enzo Conti. So I think some someone on the show is having a little bit of fun with the name and the video game and the New Orleans connection. That's so, funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, let's let's finish off with Gina and Fia. I'm curious what you thought about this idea. Gina's trying to hard sell Fia about having the baptism. She she they're also trying to feed the baby who's fussy. Fia thinks the baby is hungry. She says the baby just ate. They're talking about breastfeeding. Gina says that, you know, with Rocco and with Carlo, they took to the breast, they latched on, no problem. Every feeding with Fia was a battle. She's feeding the baby formula while she's having this conversation, and the baby is hungry, and she does take to the bottle. And she looks at Fia and says, you have a mother's instinct about you. Maybe trust that I have one, too. Is that a convincing argument? Does Has Gina demonstrated where... Fia should have trust that she has a mother instinct in doing what's right. I mean, specifically, it's about the baptism, but Gina and Gina's actions, especially in this episode, made me wonder. I don't know that Gina's demonstrated that we should trust her motherly instinct or any other instinct that she has. Hmm. I do believe in mother's instinct. Um, I was just reading like a Scientific America study about how during pregnancy, the children's cells actually mix and mingle in with the moms and they've ended up finding the children's cells in the mom's brain during autopsy and stuff like that. So I do feel like there is a connection there between moms and kids that is very special and very um, unique. I do think we have a pretty good sense of our kids and and be able to know what's best for them for the most part. Having said all that, uh, Gina, <laughs> what's right to Gina and what's right capital R, like right for bigger picture, I think are two different things. I think she can claim I have a mother's intuition. And so why don't you trust that I know what's right? What's right by Gina standards is the rest of the sentence for me. So I think that, yeah, she she runs it through her Gina filter and then determines what she thinks is the right thing to do. When it comes to this baptism thing, I mean, again, this really is more about that sort of generational, like everybody has a grandma who wishes the ch children were all baptized or whatever. So you like do it for her or whatever. That's a very common storyline. So I think that there's, I don't know, she's, she's really using the concept of mother's intuition to just try to twist a feels arm a little bit and get something out of her. I don't, I do not think that there's anything right about Gina's intuitions. <laughs> no, and then watching how she has done with her 
kids, I would be hesitant to trust in in that instinct. It's worked out like she's zero for three. So I feel like it's not going well. Which is troubling if that makes by a process of elimination, it makes Jimmy to be the more nurturing one. I mean, I think all those Baxter kids are kind of damned. He he kind of was, though. I mean, remember the no, whole, like, wiping her off, wiping her, her hair off her face and yeah, stuff? Yeah, I mean, he's he picking dead is. bird feathers out of his clothes. I mean, everyone's no. everyone in the Baxter family <laughs> has their limitations. It definitely right. feels like, to an extent, Fia is, like, really adopted, right? Because oh, she, she hasn't shown any of the violent outbreak tendencies. I'm I'm, I'm trying to think back <laughs> to, to where we've seen her, and we've not seen that aspect of her at the all. The only time that she seemed a little bit a little bit edgy is do you remember there when she was in the car with Adam and she was like don't lie to me and she got real tense about don't lie to me yeah. to him that was the only time to me where I feel like she showed a little bit of like if you cross me I could kill you <laughs> so that was but, that, but that's it you're right the rest of the time she has actually been very level-headed and and a pretty happy person generally yeah, within within the within reason of within, the, you know, the death of her brother and everything, but I mean, like, and her love like and her a brother. smiley person, like to like when she was dating Adam. I'm thinking of that time more. Yeah, I mean. intellectual, kind of kind of emo we and goth, but like and, and introspective. But yeah, I think happy. She's well, totally well, someone you well would adjusted. enjoy talking music with. I bet you would love to sit and talk music with her. Well adjusted, given her upbringing and circumstances. Yes, far yes. more so. So, yes. man, a dense episode. A, a lot. This was a big episode because I think it dealt so much with the narrative and the motivations and and really trying to set out for us why is everyone acting the way they're acting and what is propelling them i thought this was a great episode to to shine light on that in in all the storylines no senator grandma but i guess she had to go back to baton rouge i guess the legislature required her to be away <laughs> right she so. was just off for the weekend <laughs> this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to tales from yaya's your dedicated after show podcast for showtime series your honor if you wouldn't mind heading to apple Podcasts. Spotify podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five star review, it helps us. It helps the promotion of the show, helps other people find the show and listen to the show and, and just kind of grows the community that uh, you're on our community that we're all looking to nurture and grow. You know, listen, we'd really appreciate it if we like it and you write something nice about us. We'll read it on the air. I, last week, I said that we'd buy you a drink at the Grand Rain and sing Summertime Living is Easy. What are we going to do this week? I don't know. If you leave us a nice review. We'll uh, take you to Houston for some barbecue. Come meet me. We'll go to Woody's we'll Barbecue and not put your head through the glass. <laughs> and we won't fight. Nah, no fight. No head through the glass. foolishness. Poor Woody's Barbecue is going to have to replace that big plane of glass. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.